Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower dot com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber dot com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Jackie Oatley, the journalist and broadcaster who has covered women's football since 2004. Also by Pippa Monique of AFTV, and by Glenn Moore, women's football columnist for World Soccer. Now, sport is about taking the main chance. In the case of women's football, that means making the most of this summer's World Cup. I get the sense the game is inching towards a tipping point. Equal pay is a live issue. Professional standards are rising. Interest is growing. I suppose the question is, Jackie, what will make the difference? Well, the difference in this country certainly would be if England were to win it. That would be the biggest difference because the last World Cup, which I hosted for the BBC, I think we we're all quite surprised by the number of people that really bought into it, and that felt like a, a big step forward. Unfortunately, of course, the last minute own goal in the semi-finals meant it came a long way, but didn't quite make the players superheroes, if you like, and you know, front-page news, which it would have been. And I think were England and Phil Neville's team to really take that final step and lift the trophy, then it would really explode, and every single player would be a household name. Certainly, the first eleven. So, from this country's point of view, that's what it would take. From the wider game's point of view, um, I think. Top quality matches. The fact it'll be every game will be live. Yeah, we can't take these things for granted. It hasn't always been the case, and I think so many people in the world clearly adore football that previously they had written off the women's game because it really wasn't visible, and then they saw it and it wasn't the standard that they would expect because they weren't professionals, of course. And now we really have moved on to a stage where this is a spectator sport. We've got to now think after that get bums on seats. Something I always bang on about, but I think success really is the biggest thing, and um, and quality of play, that's there. It's just the success now. You see a lot of the games uh, with Arsenal, yeah. Monique. What's your sense of the standards within the WSL? Are they rising? They've risen a lot since I first started watching the WSL back when the likes of Alex Scott were playing and. Now there's bigger crowds, and the players, as you said, they're professional now, got contracts, so they can dedicate more time with their training, like just building up themselves as players. And the quality is just there. Some of the players, and when I speak to the fans a lot, I speak to a lot of fans, fan engagement, and a lot of the women players are now being compared to the men's players with their quality on and off the ball. And you can really see that fans are taking the sport seriously as much as they do the men's, but not as much 
as it should be with their standard. According to Phil Neville, Glenn, uh, Lucy Bronze is the best player in the world. Is that hype, hope or reality? I suspect you'd have to say there's a large amount of hype. It's very rare the best player in the world has been a right back. I know she's just moved in midfield for England, but your best player in the world tends to play in positions where they can influence the game much more than it can from the right back. So, I mean, she's a very good player and she's arguably the best player in the world in her position. That's why she plays now plays for Leon, the best club team in the world. But the best player in the world, that's quite a big call when you're looking at people in other countries like Marazan, for example, you know, some of the players in the US team. Um, you really need to be being the, the difference between winning games and losing games, you know, which Messi is, for example. With the, you know, if you look at the Arsenal team, uh, Pippa, you've got a wide breadth of talent within that team. Who do you expect to come out of Arsenal and impress at the World Cup? 100% Beth Mead. I feel like now, she was under the radar for a long time because you'd always hear the Vivian Miedemars and, and Danielle Carters and Jordan Nobbs, of course. But Beth Mead, I think she really showcased herself at the She Believes Cup and got everyone's attention. And she's amazing on the wing and she scores goals too and gets a good load of assists for the team. Mm. Izzy Christensen, that ankle injury, how big a blow is that? Do England need her to get back? Oh, it feels so familiar, doesn't it? Mm. Having one of England's key yeah. players being mm. injured in the build-up and then the race to get fit. It is a big blow, bearing in mind Jordan Nobbs' injury, which was a huge blow, obviously, for her, but to England as well. That pace, energy, the fact that she can shoot from distance, can score from anywhere. She's a real loss. And I think one of the problems now is not just were Izzy Christensen not to be fully fit, but... It's a case of what does Phil now do with his midfield because there is the question mark whether Lucy Bronze might actually then be shoehorned into midfield because clearly Phil rates her so highly and he's right to. But that is a big debate. Do you take your biggest player or your best player who is a right back and say, well, I think she could be equally influential in midfield? If you do, then you're going to have to put her there in all these friendlies. It's funny because Phil obviously played at full-back most of his career, but also played quite a lot yeah. of time in midfield, especially yeah. as his career went on. So at least he has personal experience of what's required to make that transition. Yeah. Mm. So it is a concern, but it'll be very interesting to see what he does with bronze because he's, he's clearly contemplating it. And then what do you do? You put Rachel Daly at fullback. She's been a striker as well. So are you then weakening your side, but obviously less stability in defence in terms of knowing who does what and having played there before? So I think Phil's got a lot of very positive options. It's just such a shame about the injury situation, but he can't think about what might have been. He's, he's got to think about what he can make it into. We've had some time to you know, percolate the lessons of that She Believes Cup. Um, significant, the, the progress victory. made there? Yeah, I think, I think even just looking at the pictures of England lifting a trophy, mm. even though it's, a, it's a, an invitational and what have you, and of course it's nothing like a, a major tournament, we all know that, but I just think the confidence it can give those players with some of those results and, and the performances as well, in World Cup year, it's one of the main hurdles over the years of England has been the psychological battle. I spoke to a lot of the players about this and they, they felt they could do really well, a bit like the men, don't like to compare, but frankly, quarterfinals, probably penalty shootout defeat. And mentally, that's where they were. Now, it's been a big psychological battle to get past that, to get past France, to beat Germany, to get into a semi-final and you know, only lose in agonising circumstances. And I think psychologically they have overcome those hurdles as had the men to a certain extent at the last World Cup. And that's a really positive thing for them. So um, I think they've got a great chance of doing something really quite special. And I think whilst the She Believes, no one's going to say it's anywhere like the World Cup. It can only bode well in so many ways of, mm -hmm. of Phil getting to see 
what his players can do in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. In terms of psychology, the, the whole England thing helps. I mean, having the Morrison Georges now, mixing a lot between both the genders and the age groups, and they're seeing other England teams winning competitions, age group competitions, you know, been very successful with them, mixed with players are winning, and yeah, the, the, the younger girls have done very well as well. And it starts to get a sense that England as a concept can win stuff. Mm. We've always felt they wouldn't win stuff. I think, therefore, there is a slight knock-on effect between the various teams. The fact they're all based in the same place now and the coaches do a lot of spend a lot of time together, learn a lot of lessons from each other. Mm. And in that context, the international context, you know, we had the England kit launches last week. How symbolic is that, that at last the women's team have got their own gear, basically? Listen, I think it's amazing. <laughs> I think we had that one small step before when Premier, like the club started promoting women's shirts so you can have their names on the back. But now we have a national team shirt that you can buy for your younger sister, your daughter, that you can really buy into the brand of women's football. And it's great commercially, as well as for the players. It gives them a big boost to say that people really are supporting us and we can really take women's football to the next level. Mm. Fine, though, I can remember it being the other way around when the first time they produced a men's kit for the women as well. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, you go back to 84 when we were in the European Championships, you've got the video, they're wearing something that's obviously an England kit of some description, but it's not like anything the men ever, ever wore. And it doesn't really, you know, the bits and pieces don't really match, and yeah. the shirt's all baggy, but it wasn't a man's shirt handed down. It was, it was, I mean, the men's teams weren't wearing it. And I do remember when, I think it must have been under Umbro, when they, for the first time, some of the women players came into the kit launch and they also made the kit for women. And that was like a big step to have them wearing the same kit. And that was another big step for them not wearing the same kit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's interesting, we've had confirmation, Jackie, that Ada Hagerberg, who won the Ballon d'Or, isn't going to represent the country in, in the World Cup because of inequality and, and her perceived lack of professionalism. How big a blow is that? It is a blow because she has that title to her name and she's not going to be there even though her country have qualified. It's still quite a grey area, this, because she's never really explained exactly what the problem is. And so we can't really be sure what she means by it. So there could well be something else going on behind the scenes that we're not aware of because her sister's not involved either. Mm. And she surely would be otherwise. So... It seems there's more to come out about this that she hasn't really explained yet. So it just takes a good journalist, Mike, to get hold of her. <laughs> Glenn, find her. There you go. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> needs to get hold of her. It might come out of Norway, but yes. Sit uh, down with her. World Cups have always missed great players, mm. huh? Christ, missed 78. People yeah. don't remember that. Yeah. It's Someone shame, else will emerge. It's a shame, isn't yeah, it? It's such a household because name. people mm. now know her. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, for the wrong reasons, because of that silly business, yeah. twerking yeah. business. Well, that's another, that's but people will say, well, you know, I've heard of this girl. How good is she? And they want to watch it now, to look yeah. out for that name. And now that she's missing, it's going to be a knock-on effect for people that don't normally watch women's competitions and are now looking forward to the World Cup. And she's not there, so mm. it's a big knock-on effect. There are lots of issues swirling around women's football. The key one, as I mentioned very earlier, was equal pay and the class action suit you know, taken by the national team in the States. Where do you see all this going, Glenn? The, in the States, which is a particular one because that's the one place where probably the women's team has generated much money as the men's team. I mean, it varies because it's the... Accounting cycle includes different World Cups and different tournaments. So some years they're making more than men, some years they're making less. But I think that's a different case to virtually everywhere else. It's the only place at the moment where you could argue the women's team aren't making as much money as the men. And even then it's complicated because they're directly hired by the US Federation, whereas the men obviously are hired by their clubs and play for the Federation. Mm. Yeah, so it is, it is quite a complex dispute. But it's a hell of a bold, brave steps actually take your own Federation to court. And, show, and the impressive thing about it is the unity of the squad, the fact that everybody's involved. 
Yeah, it's not a sort of sense that, yeah, well, okay, we drop those, we pick another bunch of people or something like that. So it's a very powerful step. In terms of elsewhere, there has been steady movement. Uh, Norway, you know, one or two other countries where there has been an agreement of equal pay of sorts in certain areas. I mean, the Norway one is predicated on how you succeed in World Cups. As it happens, the Norwegian men's team aren't getting to World Cups, whereas the women's team are getting to World Cups. So funny enough, they may get more pay. But then it becomes also based on how much money comes out of FIFA. And uh, as has been reported, I mean, the... Um, the increase in pay for the Women's World Cup from FIFA uh, is all 24 teams would not get as much as France got for winning for one team. Mm. And the actual gap has got bigger because the gap in the men's increase has been even bigger than the women's increase has been. Mm. So I think it's a long time coming. I mean, most of the women players do not say we want equal pay because they're aware that it do not generate the same revenues. But the argument is more like a, a fair share. And there is a sense that there should be a level of subsidy because obviously the women's game didn't play for 70, 80 years as a professional sport. I mean, in rugby at the moment, I mean, they, they didn't get any bonus, did they, for winning the um, Grand Slam mm. Championships, mm. Um, the women's team, which seems iniquitous given the fact they were being watched by quite significant numbers. Mm. Yeah, is it viable in the case of England, equal pay? Oh, that's such a tricky one because, I mean, if you look at the FA Cup situation as well, and, and of course... The FA Cup only costs the FA money for the, for the women, whereas mm. the men generate money. So it, it is really difficult, um, and it's about how you subsidise it going forwards. I think in the case of the American situation, they really shot themselves in the foot, haven't they? Because what horrendous publicity absolutely shocking publicity and actually if they just sorted themselves out they could have prevented it ever getting that far and also that not only have they shot themselves in the foot they've been a little bit stupid because they've got such big characters mm. yeah. haven't they yeah. in that women's team would you mess mm, with megan rapino <laughs> would you mess with the likes of hope solo i don't think many people that would um so I think it could have been so easily avoided with better communication skills, which is a big issue in football, full stop. Mm. Huge problem with, with lack of communication, both internally and to the wider public. And they could have just stopped all this at base, worked together, used the women by promoting what a fantastic team and, and how great they've done over the years. And instead, they've just they've got a load of negative publicity. Totally mm -hmm. unnecessary. Point out, the England men don't actually get paid much for by their FA. It all goes to charity. Yes, it does. They do get, they do get, however, yeah. they do get their bonuses. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, so it's slightly different. But obviously, they're making so much money for clubs, it's yeah. not really relevant. And it's yeah. just so different now, isn't it? Because the women have the central contracts, and that's another issue. But there is a debate, do they still need central contracts? Because they were brought in, if you recall, 2007 World Cup, when, you know, worked out they're on £40 a day for eight weeks away or whatever it was mm. and couldn't pay their mortgages when they got back. That's not the case now. The clubs are paying them proper money. So you wonder whether that's going to continue because you've then got the club versus country situation, haven't you? The country are paying them 20-odd plus grand a year, but then the clubs are paying them as well. Um, so it's just a totally different model to the men. So, yeah. again, comparing it doesn't mm. really work. But is there is there a sort of an underlying message here, Pippa? You mentioned Megan Rapinoe. She said, look, always believe in yourself. Fight for what you're worth. Now, if we talk about women's sport being almost like a hotbed of, of potential role models to young kids, getting the right values, is that a good message to send? Oh, that's a difficult one. Of course it's a good message to send because you always want the younger generation to believe in themselves and to believe in anything they want to achieve and where they can go in life. But as a sportswoman, as an athlete, you still have to have a level of professionalism. It's a good message for the youth, but I don't, I don't know how to answer that one, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. What about, you know, another small step forward, Glenn? We had Emma Byrne, 134 caps, just being introduced to the Hall of Fame in the Republic of Ireland. First female to do so. Is that, again, another sign of, you know, baby steps forward here? Yeah, and there have been some in Scotland as well, haven't there? Some of the former players. And it's a, these are all steps. 
It's all, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know how seriously people take the Hall of Fame and those sort of things. Some, yeah, more than others, I feel it's a great honour to be included. Um, and the yeah, it's all, it's all it, steps, it's all it? symbolism, it's all steps, you know, like the kit. I've got general levels of acceptance of these things, right? Yeah, even, you know, step up from simple stuff like having the fixtures and the results in the paper. Yeah. You know, that sort yeah. Of thing, which is perhaps more important in a way uh, to get people to go to the games, but it's all steps up, yeah. Yeah, yeah talking of the papers, you know, the Daily Telegraph are launching, you know, their women's sports section. Anna Kessel, who's been on, on the podcast, going to be their inaugural sports editor. I get the sense, and, you know, been around journalism for far too long, it's a hugely significant step, this. Do you agree? Oh, totally. But I think the fact that they've got Anna Kessel to head it mm. up, I think, is a major coup, really, because, I mean, that woman has so... In fact, she's got an MBE for her work for services to... Um, the official title, I'm not sure, but for, for what she's done for women in football and co-founding women in football. The fact that she's so highly regarded, highly respected, she has a contacts book to die for. Mm -hmm. She knows everybody. She has very high morals. She's an excellent writer. She fully understands all the issues that are affecting women's sport, the coverage, the players, the athletes. She gets all of it. I happen to think she's been massively underused in the past and I think she should have had a role like this a long time ago. But being positive, it's a great coup for The Telegraph and it's fantastic for the readers. And there are so many great women's sports stories to tell. We all know that sitting around this table, which is why we get a little frustrated at, at some of the lack of coverage, because we know there are stories to tell. So this is an opportunity now with the staff that The Telegraph have brought in to tell those stories, to get them out there. And it's not about being worthy. It's not about trying to do the right thing. As Glenn knows all too well, and you as well, Mike, there's no room for sentiment when it comes to newspapers. Mm. Financially, it's has a to pay very... For oh, it has to, it has to. But there is a strong belief that there are great stories to tell. And also, I mean, I talk to a lot of people at events, marketing people, PR people. They are very, very positive about women's sport now. They feel that there is untapped uh, territory there that they can uh, that they mm. can get involved with and, and frankly make money out of, which mm. is what this is all about from a commercial point of view. Yeah, well, we've seen it, haven't we, Glenn? Big multinational corporations now associating themselves with the World Cup. You've got Manchester City, the women's team, now benefiting from sponsorship deals initially arranged for the men. I suppose, without wanting to accentuate the negative, will City almost emulate the men's team by actually having almost an unfair competitive advantage simply because of the money that's available to them? Possibly, but the sheer amount of money being put in the women's foot at the moment, it wouldn't be difficult for any mid-ranking Premier League club to outspend City if they wanted to. Because City aren't spending that much money. I mean, they're not using those billions and billions of dollars that they've got. They're using significant money. Mm. But, I mean, when you look at the team that comes from the bottom of the Premier League, makes £100 million guaranteed. I mean, we aren't talking those sort of levels of spending in the women's game. So you can make quite a big impact without a huge amount of money. I mean, there'll always be the argument from supporters, well, why, why are you spending on the men's team? Because we're at the bottom of the league. But at the moment, the spending isn't so much the city, City's uh, huge wealth really has to queer the pitch, as it were. Because mm. I suppose you know, the city structure reflects the, the strategy of the club, you know, the one club type of umbrella. What's it like at, at Arsenal, Pippa? Just touching on the Man City, I want to praise them for how they promote the women's football because as we, if you compare them to the other women's teams, they're under one umbrella. They have one Instagram account, one social media account for the men's and women's team. They play in the same complex. So to promote their game and the money they have invested, it's doing well for them because 
I think it does well for the Man City fans because they're more in touch with their players. But with Arsenal, it's very level-headed. It's, they're two very big clubs, both in the men's and the women's league. So we always will have the numbers there and always have the attention. But Man City will soon tip over the edge over Arsenal, I believe. Mm. The quality they have, the funding they have and the support they have from the club. That's a huge thing, isn't it? That being able to use all the facilities, yeah. sharing and being around the men's players and, and the genuine attitude. We've seen it in the past, haven't we? Liverpool, for example, made this big thing about being, oh, one club, you know, come and train with us. And suddenly it was like, actually, don't train with us anymore. Go over there and, and, and stay stay well apart. So it's not just been lip service with Manchester City. They, and I don't know if you saw recently with the, with the two cup finals and they did the split screen yes, on the social yes, media. I mean, that was just, that just takes ingenuity. That takes creativity. Yeah. And it's one of my big bugbears with the women's game when it comes from, to a marketing point of view. There's not enough common sense applied. It's not always about throwing money at it. It's about using common sense. And if you've got the will to maximise the impact you can have on the women's game from the men's point of view, but just from the fan base in general, you can really make strides in getting more bums on seats. Yeah. I've mentioned mm. it more than once. It's all about <laughs> I mean, I wonder what it may come for the clubs. I mean, the FA strategy with, with originally was different audience, family audience. With the move to winter, it's obviously diluted it slightly. And also you wonder whether that whether there is this audience that big or whether they may be better off doing like the Spanish angle or the Mexican angle, whereby it's much more tribal. These players are representing our club Therefore, they deserve your support. Yeah. And that appears to be the case in other countries. Maybe it is a case that there isn't this family audience in their hundreds of thousands or even thousands to turn up. Maybe you are looking at getting people who watch the men on the Saturday to watch the women on the following Saturday or something like that. Oh, yeah. And when I go to games, it's not just you know, mums and little girls. There's loads of blokes and loads of boys watching. Mm. I've taken my sons. So it may well be a shift in what they're aiming at marketing to terms of getting people, getting those sort of numbers that we begin to see in some other countries. Mm. Yeah, I heard the stats on it the other day. Obviously, I've totally forgotten them. But I was quite, <laughs> I was quite surprised by the, the main audience for women's football in terms of actually watching, I think, in, in the stadium. It's very much men. I think it's a myth that, yeah. oh, we, we need to get the women through the gates. Yes, of course, you need to get women and girls through the gates. But absolutely, men and, and boys, I mean, it, it's... The whole point is it's football. Yeah, yeah. it's football. Basically, people We're trying to football. get people yeah. to forget that it's, oh, the women, they can play too. No, it's football. Yeah. And this is quality football. It's hugely competitive. It's great to watch. People just need to know about it. So men's clubs need to tweet more about it. Yeah, Players do. themselves need to tweet more about it. Everybody needs to play their part. Might it's be, not just about the might be less of a cricket then. These <laughs> mythical audiences don't necessarily exist. Yes. Stick I, to the core group. I take my sons to the game. They absolutely love it. The moment we qualified to the Conti Cup final, they were like, yes, let's get to... Get down there, we want to watch the final. So it's not just about women and families, all boys, men mm. want to watch. Yeah. Atletico mm. Madrid, yeah, yeah. 61,000 nearly. Yeah. You know, world record for their game against Barcelona. Tony Duggan scores the second Brilliant. goal. What lesson can we draw from that in this country? You know, I'm looking at are we ever going to get to the point where, say, Liverpool could play Manchester United, who will inevitably be promoted at the end of this season? At Anfield. Could you get 20,000, 25,000 for that? Yeah, If you, if you marketed it the right yeah, way? Yeah, I think marketing is key. I think, I think the marketeers of women's football would admit that there is a lot of work to do. Yeah. Nobody's saying that they've remotely cracked it, but the good thing is there's huge potential there. And, and I know that research is being done as to the audience and, and where they need to go. But of course, I mean, you think of the massive fan bases, and I don't think people need to be shy about tapping into the existing fan base. There hasn't been that history of women's football in this country of actually taking kids to games for the last 100 years like the Hesemite. Forget about why, there just hasn't been. So they need to create it and they need to act fast because these players are playing at a level whereby they deserve to be watched every week. And not just that, 
They are great to watch. It is such a unique atmosphere, the women's game. Liverpool, Man United, why on earth could that not be a huge game? And, and it's just frustrating that in this country, the WSL record attendance is about 5,000 yeah, when, like the when they were allowed to, yeah. to the Emirates. It's been a massive missed opportunity, Spurs. Yeah. Spurs new ground. Oh, yeah. One of the test events should have been Spurs v Man United. Championship game, top of the table, first v second. The timing is right, it fits into the schedule. They could have played that, we would have capped it at 30,000 people, they would have sold out easily. Because people want point. to see the stadium. Yeah. yeah, and when they yeah. get there, they might think, well, this is quite good, actually. Yeah. We'll come back. It's a really I mean, good it's point. an incredible missed opportunity. You're in the wrong business. You should yeah, be yeah. marketing. I mean, they're picking up <laughs> <23 laughs> like that, plus the Legends game. It's like, yeah. It's yeah, great point. Yeah. And then that would emphasize the whole one-club mentality, wouldn't it? Well, yeah. And there was a big game on the 31st yeah. of March, sorry, at Chessant, with Manchester United playing at Tottenham. That's that the game that could have been, yeah. 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 so They have actually got a fixture scheduled in that window when they're doing mm. test events. Is it also, on a broader point, about, you know, I'm a great believer in, in sort of dropping the veil within sport and, and expressing the humanity and personality of players. What does women football, women's football need to do to actually create definable characters in, in, amongst the top players? Are they accessible enough at the moment? I think they are hugely accessible. I mean, if you were to attend the game, they spend a massive amount of time after the game with media and fans. So they are accessible to everyone that attends the games, but I feel like they don't, we've touched on it before, they don't get enough media attention. There's so many outlets online, on paper, on radio, that can build up these profiles just as much as they do the men, as much as they do other athletes, tennis players. Just get them a profile to say, this is who this lady is, this is what she does, this is how she got to this position, and this is how she became a professional footballer. But the clubs don't help themselves very much. Oh, I mean, yeah. no club's ever come to me and said, would you like an interview with? Yeah, it's true. And quite often you're trying to get interviews and you're like, no, no, they can't do it, or you're not back. But obviously for the bigger names, but um, quite a few of the clubs haven't got a full-time member yeah. of staff working just in the women's game, they're often seconded for the men's game as well. Sometimes they come from the, with the same attitudes whereby they're dealing with the men who are under huge demand mm. and you're constantly knocking back your know, requests and you come to the women's game with the same mentality. It's not the same way you're trying, you're supposed to sell the players rather than that way around. We have this thing where we divide press officers between two categories, the ones who keep you away from players and the ones who try and help you. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a bit simplistic really when thinking about it and it's more a case that it's partly resources and also the pressure from above and so on. But some of the ones, you know, they don't necessarily have the power over the coaches even say, well, we need to promote the players more. No, they've got training or they've got this or they've got that. I mean, you know, there's quite a lot of hours in a day, not training all the time. Yeah. And sometimes it's a break just from being involved in playing and training to do interviews. Yeah. Is this part of just the, I suppose, the natural evolution of the game, Jackie, where, let's be honest, probably a couple of clubs set up a women's section just because it was the right thing to do rather than actually having any strategic view of how they were going to deal with it. Are clubs now beginning to understand that women's football could be a positive force for them? Yeah, a bit too slowly for yeah. my liking, frankly. Yeah. I mean, I'll yeah. just get straight to the point and I just think so much more could be done by clubs and we talk about it a lot, don't we? We mm. sort of... There is so much potential, but there's no point in just sitting here chatting about potential. Clubs themselves need to say, right, we are paying our players a certain amount. Are we getting enough out of them in terms of commercial revenue? Because players themselves need to do a lot. They need to be guided by people who are, who are experts in that field. So, for example, it doesn't have to cost anything. I mean, look at all these, these students on all these courses that, you know, Glenn runs a course at, at City Uni I went to a couple of weeks ago. and They're all over the country. They're learning all these skills and they'd love to have some experience. So why not have 
interns, a couple of interns a year or per term or whatever, and get them doing individual pieces with some of the players and get them telling their stories and, and linking them to Twitter accounts and saying, you can see this player this Sunday at 4pm. Constantly getting the message out there, where the games are, when the games are being played, who the players are, what position they play, what the manager's like. There is so much information to get out there that the clubs need to be ringing up journalists, not ignoring emails when journalists are trying to do stories on them. Mm. Yeah. Also, you've got to create coaches as sort of leadership figures. Are Arsenal missing the trick with Joe Montemurro? I've not met him, but people who have rave about him. Um, again, he seems to be the sort of perfect guy that you can get to actually express yeah. the bigger picture. Look, look, there's something going on here. Every time I've spoken to Joe, he's never afraid to say whatever he wants to say. So that he's a great... Well, being an Aussie, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> he's always available to, to say it how it is. And I think he's a great forefront man, obviously a great coach as well. Joe's great. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And he's good, he's good with the media. Yeah. You can always count on him. They're obviously, the, as you said, the clubs will always stand in the way. Joe's busy at the moment. It will never be Joe saying we can't talk about this. It will always be the people before him saying, Joe has to do this, has to do TV, has to do press, and then he will come speak to you. But he will always make time and he always talks to the fans constantly. Good. Good. Um, there was a Twitter table that makes really interesting reading, looking at the interactions in February. Chelsea had the most with 154,000. Then Manchester United, 88.6 thousand. Arsenal, 77.7. Liverpool, 75.7. Manchester City, only fifth, 44.1. Well, City have separate accounts mm. for match days only, and they have a joint account right. outside of match days. So it's hard to tell with that, those sort of figures. Mm. Can you read anything into that in terms of the relative pop popularity? Not necessarily. I mean, it is interesting. I mean, talking to guys on newspapers uh, and websites, Arsenal, Liverpool, Manchester United are the three biggest British teams for clicks. You know, anything they put up, get far more hits on those three teams. And then it's Barcelona and Real Madrid, ahead of anyone English. And these are English websites. Yeah, admittedly, they're now global brands to extend, yeah, places like The Guardian, Independent, and so on. And then you've got Chelsea and Spurs, and then you've got City. I mean, but it takes time. You know, City, 15 years ago, was just a uh, sort of up and down first division, second division team, which were a bit of a laughing stock at times. Yeah, even among their own support, there was city, the City thing, wasn't there? Mm. Um, yeah, and so therefore it takes time to build that massive brand that clubs like Liverpool and Manchester United and Arsenal have had for decades. Mm. With Manchester United, how do you see that unfolding? Are they going to be a real power next season? Yeah, I believe so. And they've got a very good manager there in, in Casey Stoney, who a great experience in the game throughout. And she's having a good first season. She knows all aspects of the game in terms of the media side, publicity, the game itself, of course, coached for so many years. Um, and she's got a, a very good bunch of players there. And from what we're hearing about um, behind the scenes at Manchester United, they're very much buying into it. And, and I know I've been very critical in the past about them for not buying into it. So full credit to them uh, for doing so now. And I think they couldn't do it half-heartedly. The worst thing that United could have done was go, OK, we'll get a women's team, but just let's, let's keep them to one side and let's not, let's not make too much of a bigger song and dance about this. Let's just tick that box. It wouldn't work for them. There's no point in them doing that. Mm. Um, so, yes, I do fully expect them to do it properly. And, and 
there's no point in trying to run before they can walk. It was right that they only applied for championship status. They didn't apply for WSL status. And that was the right thing to do. And, and let Casey Stoney um, build them gradually. But I think they and Tottenham probably will get promoted this season. Um, hopefully, they'll both get the support they need next season in the WSL because that top division needs everybody to be firing on all cylinders in terms of the full support, in terms of the finances, in terms of the marketing, in terms of doing everything absolutely professionally and then give them the opportunity to be as good as they can. What else can the game do to help itself? And actually, this probably will be one for you, Jack. Full-time referees? <laughs> How do you know I like talking about referees? <laughs> um, yeah, I am, I'm very defensive of referees because I feel nobody else is defending them, frankly. Uh, and they have a very difficult time. But in terms of the women's game, it's slightly different because they don't have, at the moment, a dedicated pool um, for the women's game. And this is something that Emma Hayes has been vocal about. And it's right that she was because nobody else was really saying this. And as a result, the FA have frankly, agreed with her and said, yes, it is going to be part of a strategy long term to have professional full time referees. They'd love that, but they're not there yet. I mean, the men's game's not there, is it, apart from the Premier League? So it's not as if it's not just the women. But the main thing is not having a referee just parachuted in to do one WSL game a season when he no idea about the women's game. The key point about that being the positioning, for example, it's practically very different. Mm. For example, playing out from the back rather than the goalkeeper launching a you know, 60-yard goal kick. Um, so that's what they're aiming towards. Um, it is part of Kelly Simmons' strategy and it is on the cards and uh, hopefully the standards will increase. And, of course, VAR at this World Cup is going to be very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, I am an advocate of VAR as well for what that's worth. But And I think looking at this, I think, OK, there's an issue that these referees and assistants haven't used it. Yeah, they have used at it the, on, on training, though, haven't they? Yeah, Dubai, yeah. they did the exercise. But it's only, was it 26 Dubai, out of the 27? I saw, I think, yeah. Molly Hudson did a piece about... Mm. You know, yeah, I go in a coma when people talk about the VAR. <laughs> just, it, it's almost as one of these arguments which just roll on. How important is it for them to get VAR right in the World Cup, Glenn? Well, I mean, A, they have had training out in Dubai and um, Abu Dhabi. They did a boys' tournament and they took the referees out there, so they've had some experience. And, you know, and they've said, there's a piece on the FIFA channel at the moment, they've said all the right things, as you would imagine, since it's on the FIFA channel. But... Um, there will be controversies because there will obviously be something new to it, but there were in the last World Cup and there will be you know, questions when they look at it and some of the decisions are still subjective. But my thing is particularly having looked at the standard, because they use only female referees in the World Cup, most female referees do not get that experience. Yeah, there's, it's just a small pool of talent. Uh, very few of them will referee games with more than 5,000 people in them. Uh, so this is going to be a big step up for a lot of those referees. And certainly previous big tournaments have been marred by some quite poor refereeing in linesmanship. Well, second. Therefore, I think VR is going to be particularly important. I mean, certainly Phil Neville and Jill Ellis, the American manager, are both very keen on it. I mean, yeah, so I think there will be some quite significant errors during the game which will be picked up by VAR, which is what we want. You know, the referee, and then the referee isn't the person who gets blamed for it. You know, the <laughs> VA's done, the decision's made, and we all move on. Whereas as things stand, the referee gets blamed for you know, a possible match-win decision. Uh, so I think, it's, I think it's very much was required for this tournament, and it will be controversial, but we should get the right result in the end most of the time. Yeah, mm. that's the most important thing, isn't it? And I think this is what sometimes people forget about VAR. It is to get the massive game-changing decisions right. It's not about that, oh, was it slightly, was his knee, was his toe? Don't waste time on that, it doesn't yeah. matter. It really doesn't matter. It's about those big, massive decisions. And because the standard of women's refereeing is behind others for obvious reasons, they haven't had those opportunities, that training in the past, 
this should help in that regard. And um, and so as long as they get the big decisions right, you know, just look at the the Fulham um, Fulham game not so long ago with England, Argentina, Online, yeah. England, Australia. Mm. There was when, some huge errors there. Yeah, there was oh, really yeah. big errors, weren't there? Line, one and of them. Yeah. usually defending referees, I was having to don't tweet, don't tweet, don't tweet because <laughs> I don't like to be critical. But there were big yeah. errors from really experienced officials that day. And the most important thing at the World Cup is fairness and getting the big decisions right. Ten years time, it'd be like DRS and cricket. It'd just be accepted. Yeah. It'd just be part of the furniture. Because they do perform under real pressure, don't they? Yeah, of course. All of the, everyone is watching them on the screen, especially at, at that game when a huge mistake is made like that and the ball's over the line and the goal's not given. The crowd's like, hello, referee, can somebody please talk to the referee? But if you've got an assisted referee by a video, then all problems are solved. Mm. Looking at the bigger picture, what alarmed me, to be perfectly honest, was to see the final day of the WSL season be scheduled on the same day as the last day of the Premier League season. So there you've got the inherent danger of a title decider, Arsenal against Manchester City, yeah. being overshadowed. What do you think of that? This is a huge problem anyway. I know it can't be altered much, but most women's games are at the same time as Premier League games. But for a title decider, that is so tight at the top of the table as it is between Arsenal and Man City. And that is the last game of the season. And obviously, all of the Arsenal fans that go to every single one of those women's games also go to all the men's games. They, they go to all Arsenal games. So a lot of fans are not happy about this at all because they want to see, we might win the title, we could win it. But also we want to see where Arsenal finish in the league, in the Premier League. So who do we decide to watch? And I feel like something should be done about that because there's two days in the weekend. You can actually, sorry, I'm going to have to interrupt. There is some breaking news on this. It is actually going to be moved. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> it is, sorry, I didn't want to, I didn't want to interrupt. But, um, yes, it is going to be brought forward to the Saturday. Um, it, was, it was because it's the same fixture list that spews out both and it just spewed out the same day. Yeah. Um, but actually, Human has, has seen that and it is going to be brought, the women's climax of the season is going to be brought forward to the Saturday. Perfect. It just hasn't been announced yet. Oh, that's good news. Isn't yes, it? absolutely. But you're absolutely right, um, Pippa, with the scheduling, and particularly yeah. with Arsenal, because yeah. you've got a, a history of, of fans going to both, yeah. which is the future as well, I think. It's, um, it's changed a lot recently, though, because obviously Arsenal were profound for being in the Champions League, and ever since they've been in the Europa League, a lot of their fixtures are on a Sunday, so it clashes with the women's games. Yeah. So before it was mm. a bit apprehensible. Are there that. other schedule issues as well, Glenn? You know, you look, Manchester United went 63 days without a home game. That can't be right. Yes, I, saw that. I thought it was very surprising. Um, there are quite a lot of issues with scheduling and they are improving very slowly. I mean, there's a lot, there are a lot of different problems they have. I mean, one of the problems they have, obviously have is sharing of grounds and, share, and having second choice for the ground for some clubs. Quite a lot of clubs, in fact, you know, use grounds that are also used by men's teams. And they don't need to get first shout at those things. Then there's television. Obviously, uh, uh, there's quite a lot of things on during the weekend, so things have to be trying to squeeze into when you're going to get the best viewing figures, which is understandable. Uh, international breaks. We have that summer, the, the midwinter break in the women's game, which you don't get in the men's game. But it does seem odd that you could go 63 games without a home game at all. Particularly when the United have built a, quite a good support very quickly. Mm. They've got a good setup early, Bally. They had a couple of cup games in that time, didn't they, at home? One in the FA Cup and one in the uh, the Conti Cup. But, um, yeah, scheduling is, is always going to be an issue. But I do have a little bit of sympathy for the people doing the mm. scheduling yeah. because it it's not as easy as... And, and you know, so many um, international windows as well that when you actually talk to people doing the scheduling, you go, oh, I kind of wouldn't want your job because <laughs> it's mm. a lot harder, I think, than, than the rest of us mm. <laughs> realise. What about the pressure on the part-time players? You know, we, we saw over you know, the weekend with the, the FA Cup quarterfinals and a couple of examples from Durham where, you know, players essentially are shoehorning football into you know, a normal working day. 
I noticed in Argentina there's been an initiative that any club in their top 16 women's league must have at least eight contracted professional players. Is that something, that, that, that quota system, that we should be working towards in England, across the board? Uh, quota system? Well, the finances have to work. I mean, South America is so far behind anyway. I mean, mm. you know, in this country, we're kind of paying playing catch-up a little bit, but at least we are. I mean, South American attitudes towards women playing football is so far behind. Is it, it still feudal? I oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just horrible. I mean, it, it really is. They are, what, 50 years behind us, potentially, mm. even. Um, so, I mean, Argentina as well. I mean, <laughs> It's an amazing step, actually, because in, yeah. in the past, even the national team was just getting a few dollars you know, mm. here and there to cover some expenses. So, yeah. so suddenly to say, OK, half of these came full-time, it's like... That's like a huge step. Which is how it pans out. It's worked in Mexico. Mm. They basically insisted the teams, all former women's team, mm. and it's been huge success very quickly. That's the case around the world as well. I think people are looking here and thinking, oh, you know, England playing catch-up. But actually, other nations, continents playing catch-up miles behind us yeah. here, mm. miles and miles and miles behind. So, you know, you look at the history of the women's game, it dictates why we are where we are. But also, you look at the... The opportunity for the future growth, but I mean, there's no excuse really for such football obsessive nations such as Brazil, mm. Argentina, and other South American continents to at least not have the right attitude. And they did get good crowds when they played their mm. World Cup playoff to qualify for the World Cup. Suddenly they had big crowds watching them, which I think may have woken some people up to the potential. Mm. But I mean, eight players, the problem is you're the coach, what are you going to do with the eight players? Mm. I mean, in, in the men's game, in the conference, uh, in the National League, Van Rama National League, the, they went full-time this year at Dover halfway through the season because uh, I remember speaking to them, when, why do you do it now? It's like, well, we've got half the players already full-time, but there's a limit to what you can do with them. Mm. So you might as well make them all full-time. Mm. Yeah, so you lose some players, but you bring other players in, and then you, can, then you can actually train during the day properly with all the squad. Mm. So it should be really, it's really all of them or none of them. Yeah. With the Women's FA Cup, are we getting it right? I looked for TV coverage yesterday. I know BT Sport very proactive in, in their coverage of the women's game. I couldn't see a TV game anywhere. You know. For a quarter-final, I was really surprised by that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I'm laughing because it, it feels like five minutes since I had to phone up Alex Stone, the, the women's press officer of the FA, to ask him what the results were of the yeah. FA Cup semi-finals. I struggled Who's to find in the results. final. <laughs> yeah. I literally had to phone really? him. Honestly, it's not that long ago. Um, yeah, honestly, Jeez. because it wasn't yeah. on the internet, it's there was nowhere. no social media, it was not anywhere. And even then, when I found out, all I could do was phone up Five Live and tell them and say, oh, could you put a line in that Arsenal have reached their 100, 150th FA Cup final in a row or something like that? <laughs> um, so that was it. So, yeah, it's only last year, I think, that they um, had the, the semi-finals live on BBC for the first time. So, so that's great. So yesterday there was coverage that FA paid for, the FA paid for Man City Liverpool coverage. But unfortunately, when I went to it, the company that was supposed to put it together had a bit of a, a glitch technically. So you could only watch it live if you, like me, tuned in sort of halfway through and wanted to watch it from a live position. Uh, you couldn't, you could only see from the opening sequences, but that was a technical glitch. But it was also live on Five Live Sports Extra. Um, so I think it's a case of baby steps and um, hopefully one year we'll have options of red buttons of all sorts of quarterfinals. <laughs> We're just not there yet. It, it, is, it is a case of making progress though. Yeah. Let's look at the semi-finals. You know, the draw was made this morning. Yet again, Manchester City against Chelsea, <laughs> Reading against West Ham. Let's look at that game first, if we may. West Ham Pippers, a team, first season, great achievement to get well. this, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, they're doing incredibly well, local team for me, so I'm very proud of them. And I feel like this is great for the club because they need something like this for... It's their first season, as you said, as a professional, all the players are professionally contracted. And for them to get this far shows 
the other teams in the WSL and also in the championship and all women's teams across the globe that are trying to promote the women's game, how much can be achieved once you fully invest into a team? Reading? Well, it'll be interesting to see whoever comes from. I mean, Reading got some very experienced players. They, they bought well, they're well managed. I mean, they've gradually improved the last two or three years consistently. You, you would say they would probably be favourites. Yeah. And obviously came through a tough fixture uh, yesterday against Man United. But whoever gets the final will be interesting to see. They're both quite accessible to Wembley. Yeah, Wembley's quite close. Um, first time for both clubs. You might get some quite significant support if the club really put some resources behind it in terms of like getting people through the, through the gate. I mean, whereas the Chelsea-Man City final, although that would have been the obvious best two teams, you know, the competition final, it would have been, yet again, and no sense of sort of newness in that respect in terms of the two mm -hmm. teams playing each other. Yeah. Um, so it'll be quite interesting to see what sort of numbers they get for it. Mm. I'm told that ticket sales are already in advance of where they were this stage last season before even knowing who was in the semi-finals. Right. As I was told. So you it. could think, was it 40 odd last season, mm. 40 odd thousand? Five, yeah. So, um, so that's really positive. And, and again, really good players um, in the Reading side. West Ham obviously have a huge fan base who would love to yeah. fill Wembley Stadium as well. as well. So, again, it comes from the clubs. And I think you would, if you're in an FA Cup final, those you know, Reading, um, West Ham would do presumably everything they can um, to get a, a huge number of bums the, on seats. But I think even if they didn't, it would still be. There may be a fixture clash, of course, with, men's with the men's teams, but it depends on what fixtures get moved to television. Yeah. What about Chelsea City? Who wins it? Well, that's a tough one, though. But obviously, you'd, you would think Man City because of how they've gone on in the league and how they've just won the Conti Cup and they could get the treble. Mm. So you would think Man City would be the favourites because they'd want to get all three. And I spoke to the players and that is exactly what their aim is. But Chelsea, they've been there before. So have Man City, but Chelsea have won it recently. Cup holders, so... Mm. Chelsea Never won, was the it? off, would you? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> they, they won the previous four semi-finals between the teams? I think it's Chelsea. I think it's... They've won three FA Cup final meetings. I think Richard Rich Laverty tweeted this morning. They won the three FA Cup final meetings between them, FA Cup semi final meetings between them, whereas City won the three Continental Cup semi final uh, between them. Right, OK. <laughs> they're very well matched, aren't they? they whichever are way you look at it. And, and hopefully it'll be a really good game. And great that these games are on TV. And, and hopefully they'll, they'll smash the Wembley ticket sales again. OK. Finally, to draw this to a close, reluctantly. Um, <laughs> if there was one improvement you'd like to see the women's game introduce, what would it be? Um, well, one that is actually happening. I've got to be careful what I say because I'm not at liberty to say too much. Oh, difficult it's, enough. it's really difficult for someone like me. Um, <laughs> but um, I think the governance of the women's game is, is changing. Outside the FA? Not so much. Maybe ultimately. I know the Premier League are showing mm. an interest. They have shown an interest in the past. I think that possibly with, with somebody new coming in at the top, I'm hearing that things are moving on that front, that they're taking a real interest in the women's game. And, um, but I think there might be a halfway house potentially in the offing and maybe something to be announced in the summer, but not moving away from the FA, but just a case of clubs having more say directly. And I think better communication, um, neutrals potentially being on board as well and, um, and everybody having their say in how the game moves forwards uh, domestically has, has got to be a good thing. Do mm. you agree with that? Yes, of course. And I will continue to say this, the whole advertising, the marketing. I've always said I would love to see, like, for, for example, my club, I would love to see our men's players say, we're not playing on Sunday, but our women are. So come down and watch or at least have a, a male player that goes to watch every now and then to mm. show them that this is one team. Come and support us when we're not playing and the ladies are playing. Yeah, I saw Aidan Hazard. Uh, yeah, see, he know, does that. Yeah, and Watching training at Chelsea. So Another player that always does that at Chelsea is David Luiz. He's always yes. supported the women's team. Yeah, yeah. As yeah. John Terry did, didn't he? Yeah. Oh, and just say, I watched um, 
Crystal Palace ladies against Lewis on mm. YouTube the other day, actually. <laughs> Far too much time I've no, I, I, knew, I knew the commentator on YouTube was really good and I really wanted to, to tune in. But um, th they were mentioning that Wilfred Zaha was there mm. and yeah, another player, them. another mm. yeah, exactly, yeah. and another player was there as well. So it's not like they do it because they're told to by the clubs and you need to get down their publicity. Yeah. But as you say, it's huge amount of impact yeah. they can have, can't they? I think Zaha fought out for some kit yeah, in the early yeah, season. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a bit embarrassing, wasn't it, the fact that he had to do that. Coming, and he yeah. had to. But hey. Yeah, yeah. And what about yourself, John? Every club to a dedicated media department for yeah. the women and pay them on results of coverage. All these performance bonuses for the amount of coverage you get, incentivise them. I like that. Yes, I do. Women's football isn't a curiosity. It's got credibility. It's attracting media interest. Now clubs need to up their game. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.